yeah, but it rips so hard. Yes. Like it's like I was, I, I, people, I feel like talk about this all the time, but the way it starts with the hurdy gurdy man scene, it's just like, it's such a like, it's such like hard dick energy. <laughs> like to just start your fucking movie off like that, like, like, I don't know, that scene just like goes so hard and it's such a like iconic use of that song. Like, I don't think I've even heard. No, I probably have. But if I have heard Hurdy Gurdy Man used in another song before, it's clearly just like, it's not, you know, in my mind as much as Zodiac is. Like, I feel like it just, it's such a poignant use of it. And then when it brings it back at the end, oh! (laughs) (laughs) Ties everything right back up. Um, But no, it's just like, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I'm always like, there's another movie I've been thinking about. It's just like in the back of my mind rewatching. I think it's Days of Heaven. And and Zodiac is also kind of like always in the back of my mind wanting to do a rewatch of it. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Gray Smith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Danny Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was a writer whose work can be read at Film School Rejects, Thrillist, Little White Lies, and Bright Wall Dark Room, Brianna Ziegler. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of puzzles or people who like going to the library like Mr. Graysmith and anyone who loves obsessive movie deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with our weekly rum and rant podcast and uncut Zodiac session interviews and links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed are in the description below. Joining me today to discuss the aching regret of letting a suspect lumber away from a crime scene without stopping them are internet movie news trailblazer, editor-in-chief of darkhorizons.com, the man machine, my dear friend, Mr. Garth Franklin. It's complicated because I find it's that that first hour of the film works gangbusters for me. Yeah, there is a real emotional feeling that was actually goes through. This is the part where the acts of violence actually happen. This yeah. is the part where the investigation feels like it has a real forward momentum, and then you hit the point where everything stalls. Co-host of the Cinephiles podcast, the chief instigator of our brand of cinematic deep dives, my dear friend Stu Coop. On our show, we've got like the sin of envy. And I am starting to be envious of people who love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> because I acknowledge that it's almost faultless the way it's made. It's meticulous. Everything is outstanding from a, like a design point of view. But I can't... It's, it's not penetrating. I can't come away from the fact that there is no heart and soul to it. And returning, senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. New York Times bestselling author, James Patterson collaborator, Ned Kelly award winner, Australia's premier crime writer, Candace Fox. Senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields, host of Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year with Women and Noir Vember, Mariah Gates, editor-in-chief of Fangoria, executive producer of Horror Noir and Shudder's upcoming queer horror doc, Phil Nobile Jr., and contributing editor at Notice, Lindsay Romain. This is the seventh episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Ares Part 1. This sequence is dominated by three rapid-fire exchanges that have ramifications for the rest of the film. 
They encapsulate the agony of missed opportunities. The bursts of hope that a community's focus can unearth this elusive tormentor and a quartet of men being consumed by this monster. I could not think of a film to better encapsulate those feelings than Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Before we dive into the scene proper, here's Candace Fox theorizing on the frenzy that occurs when a serial killer grips a town. I've never been written a letter <laughs> and their motivation. I've had, I've never experienced that. I've had letters on everything you can imagine, uh, but not, I, they never question who done it or why. Um, so there's, I, I just think it's that people, people don't know. Um, and that's what keeps them coming back to try to find out why people do these sorts of things. And uh, yeah, it's the desire for participation. This is the thing with the Zodiac Killer and the Zodiac case is that you can still participate in it. The real case and also in, um, in the film, you can sit there and try to guess because with things like the Golden State Killer and BTK and all that, it's like, we know the answer, we've caught him, you know, so we're just gonna show you how we caught him. But, you know, I, I watched Zodiac with with judging it and going, I think, I think there's something <laughs> in there, you know, and I just wanna participate. I have always been fascinated by the people in and around uh, the crime of the serial killer, you know, because I have known a serial killer myself quite well. And he, you think to yourself, he's in jail now, he's just sitting there rotting um, like he should be. But actually, he's incredibly busy because he's dealing, he's got four girlfriends and they're all in different countries and they're fighting with each other. He's got true crime people trying to hassle him for his, um, you know, his unsolved cases. Did you have anything to do with this? You know, there are people um, who are writing to him angry. So he's just getting all of this stuff, you know, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's the same when there's, a, when there's a murder, you have people falsely confessing to it. There are people trying to offer information on it. There are people who, you know, have theories and, and it's just, uh, it just fascinates human beings, I think, um, because I don't know. There, there aren't that many real critical predator danger types in our life. Like if you don't go into the ocean, you don't have to worry about <laughs> It's okay. So you don't have a predator, you know. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, and if you don't live where there are lions, then you don't have to worry about lions. So we're, our brain, I think, is searching for a threat sometimes and uh and and killers and rapists and and that kind of thing they're they're our our predators and we like to think about them and give our brain something to do with all its terror when we left off the camera has delicately pirouetted around anthony edwards's bill armstrong on a game of jurisdictional phone tag in the final revolution the blurred huddle of tosky captain marty lee played by dermot mulroney and patrolman fook and Zelms, played by Peter Quattaroli and Jeff Callan, begins to frame and encroach on the close-up. As Armstrong swivels, the focus pulls and brings Tosky's urgency into sharp focus. Patrolman Fook has his hat in his hand. 
His strong eyebrows hang. Let's dive into the scene. Okay. Bill. Fincher and legendary cinematographer Harry Savides framed the two officers' descent into the waiting room chairs with the legs of the partners bordering the scenes like goalposts. The voices of the detectives are heard first. Folk reflects the gravity of what's happening. Zelms needs to believe in the procedures in order to sleep at night, and who can blame him? There's an absolute intensity in Tosky's gaze. Armstrong's reaction is one that's immediately haunted. He's having a premonition about the exchange and carrying through the fear from his ring around in the previous scene. He's looked like he's seen a ghost during Narlo's explanation of the crime scene bundled into a blanket and the windwalker boots. And now this. Where did you see this guy? You got the call to circle the scene, look for a Negro male. Adult. Where was he? On Jackson, heading east about the middle of the block. And this, this is three minutes after the shooting. Give or take. Yeah. And you're heading east or west? We are going west. It's, you're on Jackson, going west. So the cab was one block caddy corner southwest? Correct. Every detail is re-clarified. The gravity of the miss cannot be understated. It's a double technique. It shows the interrogation craft as a reflex, and it shows that these men simply cannot turn off once they're on. The camera shift, it's a mid-shot for both pairings. Tosky and Armstrong are positioned to judge, and the officers' folk and Zelms are pleading their case. Before we reach the conclusion of the scene, here are Garth Franklin, Stu Coot, and I discussing the perils of missing what's racing away from a scene when you're racing towards it. That, uh, I really like the way they do that. Like, ah, oh, we, we done fucked up. Like, um, but again, it's, it's information, it's communication. Like, at the time, we were looking for this. We stopped a guy. And it was funny, I was watching this because I was like, every, you know, where, wherever there are like cops racing to somewhere, like they're, you know, you're, or an ambulance driving, They've either got a body in the, the in the ambulance or they're going to someone that needs them. And it's very hard. You get such tunnel vision. It's very hard to see what's going the other way. Like it takes a very sort of switched on person to go, oh, maybe we don't need to rush to this thing. Maybe <laughs> like, because we're going there really quick. And if like the bank robbers are going away really fast, <laughs> there's a good chance we're not going to be switch, like ready to see them when we get there. So it's just, and I can see those guys, they're jogging on the spot. A little bit of sort of because there's an implications, a little bit of racism, like you know. Yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah, they they kind of agree that of the systemic racism, and I think it's like that whole just that whole thing. Like we stopped a white guy. Okay, he looked all right. He had a crew cut. He sort of in army boots. Like wasn't doing it. Like wasn't doing anything outwardly wrong. So we're and no, and, like, and they're like, did you stop him? Yeah, and they're like. I think the inference at the beginning of the conversation is what I love is like, yeah, we stopped him or we slowed down. Yeah, yeah. and they're like, they're no, like, they didn't stop him, and then I, I love Armstrong because when Armstrong's on, it's that that's what's so perfect about that three way conversation. Armstrong and Tosky both have this great habit of making people repeat details or clear up clarifications, and it's a beautiful device for the audience, but it's also really like true to who yeah. their personalities are. It's like, wait, 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 sorry, fits sorry. in with the movie, which yeah. is kind of a semi cop, <laughs> semi journalism movie. Yeah. yeah, Southwest, correct. Did you slow down? Of course we slowed down. All right. Listen, dispatch said it was a Negro male. That that was corrected. No, but at the time they hadn't changed it. This guy was white. Right, not in a hurry, kind of lumbering along. Lumbering? What do you what do you mean lumbering? Shuffling. Stalking? At a crew cut? Yeah, that's that's all correct. Like they people do. make mistakes in these situations and they get they crucify themselves and then others go. 
Like those guys seem like they'll walk away and go. One partner doesn't. Isn't it a trope of of movies though? You see it in a lot of movies where the cops always like a whole fleet of cops pull into this place and you see the one car driving away and they don't stop it. They just let it pass, even though it's like right next to the crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, well, I, is watched, that I watched Drive the other week, where like he's, he's he evades all these cops and he drives straight into the stadium, and then yeah. he walks out with his scorpion jacket over his shoulder, and like all the cops flood into the car yeah. park, and he's just walking out. Is that beautiful like YouTube clip? It was like the bank robbery, and the guys run out and just stop, and then all the cops pour it, come in, and go running in, and then they just pull out and drive away. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I think that's the, I think that's the nature of stuff though. There's adrenaline kicks in. And those, but those guys look like they would just shake that off and go, you know, oh, we screwed I mean, up. All right, yep. we didn't kill the bloke. All right, well, yeah. all right, there's a lot of, we've got, it. we're, you know, we're, just, get a rip around. we're, big, co- we're yeah, big cops. All right. Like, but also, know. I think it, it speaks to their, like, their own morality in that moment of, like, we should fucking tell someone. Yeah. Because, like, this has, the, there, the, is, the, there the, are consequences. There's, there's consequences to this. And listen, it was dark. The guy was wearing a dark jacket. There's no way. He would have been covered in blood. When Toski underscores that their missing lumbering man would have been covered in blood, Zelms receives it like a left hook. David Shire's atmospheric score is building, the music mapping the traces that Z left behind. The exact frame of 39 minutes, 47 seconds, could and should be framed. It's Anthony Edwards' conveying utter disbelief. We don't know how serious it is, and when they, you know, when it all breaks down, it's like you just love that line. He would have been covered yeah. in blood. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh shit. <laughs> Especially so when it's, forget a reprimand. That's that line's gonna hang around. It's also what you're going towards as well. Yeah. Like I've had similar situations in my job where like there are like I've had to work like two nights. On the first night, I had an interaction with someone, and then I went to bed and I woke up. And I turned on the news and there was a siege going on with the people that I dealt with the night before and missed calls on my phone. And I've like rung up and they said, we need you to come into work. I was due to go back in. They're like, we need to talk about things just to make sure everything was right that was done the night before. Because mm. someone, the people I dealt with on the night, that night they went on, uh, after my interaction, went on and shot someone. Oh my God. And then got was ended up like the SWAT team outside their house. Mm. And it was like... We came in, everything was cleared up from our point of view. We couldn't do much. Like, but they were like, wow, I hope you ticked all the boxes before you went home because someone's dead. Mm. And you're like, yeah, they luckily were. Yeah. But that's just how quickly things can, like, that interaction can turn. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild. The guy was wearing a dark jacket. There's no way. He would have been covered in blood. Did you stop him? Did you talk to him? Yes? No? No. You need to get with the sketch artist. We have to put out a new composite right away. It's just compounded tragedy after tragedy. These men were so close to the murder and the suspect. They also did have a valid excuse that they had been adhering to an incorrect profile. As Armstrong walks away, the once balanced frame of the officers in their chairs is now only boarded by one man, Dave Tosky. The man destined to signify SFPD's enduring legacy of this case. This is the system failing. The system that continues to fail. Ruffalo's Tosky cannot hide his bitter disappointment. Just as we transition out of the furnace of that appraisal into Grace Miss Carr with his eldest son, here's a discussion with David Fear about Finch's relationship to his father Jack, reflected in Zodiac long before Mank. It's such a great little 
thing that he says that because it, the choice that he's really faced with there is do you do you put in the prime soundtrack cut or do you put in the Proustian Madeline? Yes. And it turns out, you know, he, he makes the second choice, but it turns out that the, the, it the fulfills second choice both is, choices. Is the first choice yeah. is the right choice. <laughs> and it's funny because how many people, you know, how, how many people now hear Hurdy Gurdy Man on a, on a radio or whatever the 2021 20, equivalent of a radio is now? <laughs> Spotify, I guess, a Spotify shuffle. Like Hurdy Gurdy Man comes on and you immediately think of Zodiac. Like it's just one of those songs that has imprinted itself under the film and vice versa there. They feel inseparable. You know, it's funny. Um, he, I did a lot of rereading of old press that he did before I, I talked to him for Mank. And I can remember, I remember seeing the film when it came out and I remember reading a lot of the press around it. I always remembered him talking about how personal it was to him because he, he, like myself, he grew up in the Bay Area, um, although he's got about a decade on me age-wise and he uh and he remembers you know seeing the news things or reading the newspapers or hearing his parents talk about it um how that was happening around him as he was coming back so in a lot of ways it is this kind of return to childhood but it wasn't until i talked to him and we were talking about the character of herman mankiewicz not just herman mankiewicz as a person but herman mankiewicz as a character in this mm. film that him and his dad you know essentially worked on together if not necessarily together uh it wasn't until he said yeah um my dad was very obsessive a lot of robert gray smith is based on him it's based on his characteristics and when i went back to watch the film again because it had admittedly been a while since i'd seen it or at least seen it without just watching you know throwing the commentary track on and watching the commentary listening to the commentary track and watching it in that frame of mind as opposed to just as a movie that uh I went back and watched it to prep for this and was sort of like, oh my God, like that's so incredible to know. You look at Robert Graysmith in this entirely different, um, through these, these different lens went together as, as he's putting this character up on screen that is so much of his dad and so much of him trying to like reconcile with that thing with his dad. Or if not reconcile, at least sort of, you know, pay homage to it because Robert Graysmith is a fucked up character. I don't know what he's like <laughs> in real life. I've never met the man, so I can't speak to him um, as being a fucked up person. But the Robert Graysmith you get in this movie is like, um, he is he is a tarnished white knight. And to think that so much of his dad got put into that, and that was the Robert Graysmith he put up on there, is just, it's so fascinating. It and makes you can see so much admiration come through for him now. And it makes you reread that his great older son character, who's just so such a beautiful kid. He's like, I swallowed it. Yeah. yeah. Why did you swallow it? Because it's minty. It's like, yeah. of course, of that that pure. It couldn't be more beautiful innocence. And there's that. You know this because uh, you know uh, Zodiac Semoir. When you watch a scene, sometimes, especially with a movie you're really familiar with, sometimes you just find yourself like, I'm just going to focus on this character for this scene. And I've gone a couple of viewings of Zodiac in the preparation for this show and looked at his son in the scenes. Cause I really want to like, I really want to feel what Finch is going for. Cause you know, that he's being very deliberate with the way that he's framing the son and how the son perceives his dad. And are there any yeah. emotional readings you can do? And so it's really funny that maybe that's him. Who's the, who's the kid in the movie that's watching all these people absolutely fall apart and like mentally taking notes. And it's actually Fincher. Like that's who he is. He's this little beautiful observant kid, just like watching it all 
unravel in front of his eyes and kind of like, pro- you know, trying with a young mind to process how that even happens. Yeah, and, and this is not this is not a film like The Spirit of the Beehive, for example, where it's um, it's a massive, either a massive historical moment or event or moment that's being seen through the eyes of the child and the viewer gets to see it through the eyes of that child. This is just, there's just these little, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply kind of small throwaway moments and it happens later in the film too after he's he's you know been married to Chloe Stevenia and they they have their own kids and stuff where it's she keeps trying to like get in the way of him watching the TV pay attention <laughs> I'm sitting here pay attention to me where uh where you just see these these people going into these kind of um moral and ethical freefalls and the kids are watching it and you just it, it, it very consciously has reaction shots of the kids just looking at it, these people being like what the hell is going on like what's happening and yet and yet you still get you know i swallowed it because it was minty and what's <laughs> the dad say is like oh you can't do that buddy can't like, do that bud yeah it's just very tender and very loving and not angry and um yeah it's it's, there's a lot of little small moments in there for being a movie about uh, a very historical mass murderer who eluded capture. Five persons have been murdered in the San Francisco area, and in each case, the killer who... I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. It's San Francisco police. <laughs> to see the stones in concert, this The new letters from the Zodiac Killer were sent to the city room of the San Francisco Chronicle. One of the letters was seven pages Graysmith is appraising his son's attempts to disconnect. The Zodiac is occupying his thoughts on every signal, radio in the car, in the television, and eventually in the minds of the reporters in the Chronicle. The Zodiac looms, and so does Graysmith. The details of this case are intoxicating. Let's hear from Brianna Ziegler and Lindsay Romain about the ways in which this scene inspires a plunge down the rabbit hole with Graysmith. It, it's, there's just, I feel like there's so many moments in the movie where they make you think they've, they've, they've got it. Yes. And then it's just another dead end. And it's like a movie where everything's a dead end, it feels like. And yet nothing nothing feels very unfulfilled. Even though like ultimately the case of the Zodiac Killer in real life is very unfulfilled, but I still I I, I feel very convinced Arthur Lee Allen did it. I actually felt very I felt very like certain at the end of this because then I went on to Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> I, for the first time I was like googling so Arthur Lee Allen did it right <laughs> and like I was on reddit and someone offered the idea that it was two people which I mm. feel like is now like what I think maybe because it just doesn't make sense that so much of the evidence points towards him but then what doesn't point towards him is like the hard like the handwriting and the fingerprints and I feel like that's the antithesis of the movie. Yes. It's just being swathed in uncertainty and ambiguity. Yes. And that's what makes it so good. I mean, it's like how many 
I don't know. I don't know how many I've ever seen, but it is like how many, how many crime procedural movies like that just, you know, end where nothing is solved. But then there is that just sense of like, I don't know. I don't know what the word I want is for. It's not fulfilled, but just like when, when he, when Jimmy Simpson um, points to Alan, but there's still like that, that, that whole scene is so fucking good where they bring him into the that room at the airport and they're like, which is the guy? And he immediately points to Alan. But then he's like, but he had a round face like the other guy. And if I had to put my finger on it for me, I think the pacing of it mm. is so brilliant because it's it's a movie where, like I said, you can kind of hop in at different, different points and there's different moods throughout and there's different there's always something going on. It almost feels like a series of vignettes in certain ways, just in terms of like how it's strung together. So I think that part of it's really appealing to me. But I think for me, like the thing that really hooked me to it the first time, and we've talked a lot about, you know, my love of like Manson stuff. I was really obsessed with serial killers when I was uh, younger. And Zodiac was not, before I saw the movie, I was actually not familiar with the case at all. Did so I? I think, yeah, so I think the, the part of me that just latches on to stuff like that, that latches on to like a mystery and a conspiracy and, and a lot of like information to delve into. I think I loved that aspect of it because it really like kindled this desire to do research for a movie. <laughs> and it, every time I watch it, I fall down some kind of like Wikipedia hole. <laughs> and and also like, you know, we've, like I said, with, uh, again, to relate it to Manson, and it's hard not to make the comparison a little bit because really? it happened around the same time, at least when it started. Um, it, and, and in the same place, virtually in California, yeah, a strange time in American history, and and at the precipice of a lot of things, right at the end of the '60s, and um, yeah, just uh, there's a lot in the in the culture going on at that time, and a lot that's interesting for me as somebody as a fan of yeah of serial killer stories, and also just of films that get into that. Um, yeah, it was really that was kind of around the time I think I was also really obsessed with the Manson family murders and, and just getting into it. So I think the, the two kind of worked together in my brain. It, I was going back and forth <laughs> reading different uh, bits of information about both cases. And so, yeah, that aspect of it to me is very, I just latch onto it because I'm somebody who finds all that stuff fascinating. And I think the fact that this one's unsolved really, you know, and still unsolved is really something that was so appealing to me because like yeah. a lot of those other cases you you know you get all the fine details and there's a there's an end point to it and the fact that this one's unsolved and that is baked into the the whole you know dna of this film too it's about chasing for answers that you'll never get and yeah it's frustrating but it's also part of the appeal of that genre have you considered the water theory? What? Geographically, every attack takes place near a, a body of water this or water, your water theory. Name, Lake Berryessa, mm -hmm. Blue Rock Springs, Lake Wash, Herman. Washington, and Cherry. You think? No. I'm reading this book, um, Homicide Investigation by Lamone Snyder. He says you for patterns, so I'm looking for patterns. No. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. Why not? You got four crime scenes, Solano, Vallejo, Berryessa, and here, not a single usable print of the first three or in any of the letters. How does our master criminal come to the city and leave a bloody latent? I mean, assuming the gloves are his, 
He shoots the cabbie and then takes them off? So it's not his print. Maybe, maybe not. You're missing the point. The point is, the first attack... David Flaherty and Betty Jensen. They both died. From there on out, he only manages to kill the girls. Not for lack of trying. Not for lack of trying. Joe lives, Farron dies. Hartnell lives, Shepard dies. He gets so caught up with the women, he forgets to finish off the men. Plus, they're all couples and all on lovers' lanes. Paul Stein is not. Exactly. Single male cab driver on Washington and Cherry doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. So, why does Zodiac kill him? He's breaking the pattern. Despite the flurry of this incredibly expository catch-up, moving through different sections of the SFPD and the Chronicle, the filmmakers do something amazing with an incredibly dense factual case. Let's hear from Mariah Gates on what makes Zodiac such an incredible adaption. Which is how nonfiction, crime usually, it never really feels expository because the story generally is told through the details, like, or how they came across the details or, or what have you. It's hard sometimes to move that into fiction because you know you're you're not gonna just say oh there's a basement but somehow they get that little <laughs> fact about the basement in the banter in right the banter. and and what I think is I think is so clever about how they got those details in is in you know in the in the book it is like I read this in a crime thing and I read this in that report and blah 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 instead of showing it in the reports although there are sections where he's looking through the reports um, it's peppered in in dialogue in a really clever way that feels like a conversation these detectives would have and but feels bantery and so it's almost humorous how they're talking to each other and I think the specific basement line is on the phone and you know they have a really fun rapport on the phone multiple times and and so you I think what's clever about how how they did that is shown that way and shown when they fly down to Riverside because um, there's a whole huge section about the Riverside thing and the yes. and the desk and there's like a whole chapter just about the the desk, right? And you get it, you get that moment, and but it's only like three seconds, and you get kind of the incompetence of of it, not incompetence, but it being kind of a red herring. Yes. Done in a, through the frustration of the characters, as opposed to the book where it's it's broken down as if it's really a factor, and you, you don't necessarily know what's a red herring and what's not until kind of he's until the done. conclusion of the book. Yeah, yeah, until he he just lays out every possible thing that it could possibly be until you get to the literal end of the second book. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, after I've told you everything that could possibly happen, here it is. Or like the um, the bit with Iona Sky, like that's a whole another section where all these disappearing women happen, right? And they do it so cleverly where they give you this eerie scene. How is it connected? You're not quite sure. He does it in a really clever way through the soundtrack because obviously the soundtrack is so important and these these beautiful you know 60s 70s songs become the most eerie fucking things ever like you can't listen to hurdy gurdy man without chills and you can't listen to i didn't promise you a rose garden without thinking you're about to die anymore right but that's how he ties it in so in the, in the book it's just a um, here's another leg of of things that could possibly be in the movie he's like here's a, another pop song murder and or almost murder and it that's how it's tied in and you know it works because of that. And and I think that's really clever because it, it could just be a tangent, but it feels cohesive because of the way the soundtrack ties it to everything else. And then the um uh Paul, you know, Paul makes Gyllenhaal's character look at all of the different 
um, newspaper clippings. And that's the other thing is like the facts as they're presented in the books are presented like facts. And in the movie, they're presented in these very specific, heightened, freaky scenes. You know, Paul drunkenly showing um, Graysmith, you know, the clippings and things like that. And so you you were discovering this expository information in really thrilling ways. That feels like how it would be in a book, but in a book, you're always expecting it to be a little more erudite and a little more straightforward. And but it's thrilling because you're almost the detective yourself when you're reading it. Yes. So it's it brings that same feeling, but in a, in a more cinematic way. And I, that's why I think this film, like after I read the books, that made it even more like clear how brilliant the screenplay and the direction is that they were able to capture the spirit, but in a totally different way and pepper in the facts, but in a totally different way. Yes. Um, it's amazing. And, and, and I recommend, I truly, truly recommend everyone read the books because there are little, just little tidbits that you, you know, they're there and you know, they, they pile up. But if you read the book, you're like, okay, that one word, like the basement one, that one word, one line is a whole chapter. Two conversations close, another opens. June Diane Raphael's Mrs. Tosky. Sleep answers the phone, just as I sleepily slap my phone to silence to give me another snoozy respite. Here's Meg Shields with a crispy fresh take on Zodiac, Ruffalo, Brian Cox, and spotting some giant intertextual nods. Should have said this off the bat. I watched the film for the first time for this podcast. Oh my God. And, uh... Yeah, so this is all coming to you hot and fresh. (laughs) But but when you're talking about Basement, so Basement gets mentioned, it comes back later. There's like actual bits in this film, like Mark Ruffalo being a big snack boy, loving to eat. And then the one time he puts his food down is when he gets a good piece of intel off uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character. They're at a diner and Jake Gyllenhaal starts being like, I actually also solve crime. And <laughs> Mark Ruffalo like slowly puts the, the burger down. I'm like, well, this must be serious. <laughs> David Fincher was like, hello, Mr. Cox, I need you to I need you to be in on a bit and I'm gonna, you know, have you be a Muppet. Is that okay? <laughs> like, when, when I thought he only was gonna have the one moment where he, whatever, is summoned on television to coax the killer but then i think they're they go back to him later and i literally cheered i was like yes (laughs) Yes. back to belly (laughs) yeah no it's funny like uh speaking of michael mann i definitely like had a uh a thing where i was like he's for he's for dads he's for like serious dads and then i finally you know got off my high horse and watched some of it and was like oh never mind this is also (laughs) for very goofy people who like walking into the sea to think (laughs) like um uh yeah, and then I think I, I had a similar kind of uh, trepidation about David Fincher, where I was kind of, I, I understand that he's a good filmmaker, I'm not stupid, but but he is very cool uh, and very uh, withholding and uh, sharp, and that's not always what I'm looking for in a film. Like, I can find his, his films to be rather um, clinical and uh, not unfun, but procedural in a way that doesn't like excite me. I need a bit of a push. And I've like, I've, I've done my time. I've, I've watched, (laughs) (laughs) I've watched the game, (laughs) but, um, but I kind of had Zodiac in my mind as being like the clinical, you know, uh, 
hyper detailed, all these things we associate with with David Fincher. And then I watch it and it's very funny. It's yes. a comedy, very chaotic movie. Um, so yeah, I don't know if anyone's listening to the Zodiac <laughs> podcast who hasn't watched Zodiac. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, stick your toe in the water. Guys, come the people on, I... who are like very tempted, <laughs> like still in it. Um, I insist you should watch it. It's got some good. Yeah, stuff. exactly. But like the off-screen intro of Brian Cox in a film mm. about hunting serial killers—that's funny. Yeah, that's a joke. Yeah, that is that is that is David Fincher trying to tell a joke, and even that as an idea is funny to me. He's just going to call in on Jim Dunbar's morning show in three hours on television. He wants Melvin Belli on to counsel him. All right, all right. Let's go wake up, Melvin. Animal crackers. Glove box. Are these windows bulletproof? Yes, Melvin. You'll have to lie down back there. This man is a marksman. Could snuff me out at a moment's notice. Are you sure you're up for this? Don't you worry about me, Inspector. I'll be fine when the lights are on. This man has asked for my help. The man you're worrying about stuffing you out? What are these? Cookies? Lord, do you ever clean this car? Shit. KG almost tipped other stations. Just as the car rolls up on the television studio and we close out the scene for this episode, here's Phil Noble Jr. summing up our theme on this culture-shifting conversation between Zodiac and the media. It's another layer of tragedy, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. because that was the city of love and 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 hope and 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 all the you know all of this optimism of the 60s went there and then Zodiac shot it in the head. Yes. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a pretty dark reading, but you know, you're right. It's, but that, that, that idea of not trusting anybody, certainly it got worse in the 70s. Son yeah. of Sam, Edmund Kemper, uh, Bundy, like it, there was an explosion of white men that you shouldn't let change your tire <clears throat> uh, after, after the Zodiac <laughs> had his moment. But I think it's significant that Fincher was drawn to the, the boogeyman of his childhood. Mm. You know, and, and right. I think that he, <clears throat> he, again, probably he denies it, but I, I think that there's so many parallels happening there to like this, this event. And I don't even consider the killings the event. It's the letter writing yes. that, that really shakes the culture because they don't even know that these murders are connected right away, right? It's just, <clears throat> you know, these are killings that are happening, but it, the, the letter writing tr- makes it so much more ominous and he's so omniscient and he's so you know uh one step ahead that's that's when that's when people become afraid of him that's the the campaign of terror and that's what makes you know changes him from a serial killer to a domestic terrorist was what was the that letter writing campaign i think and and it it essentially makes him not a serial killer this is just terrorism right yeah because he's not following any of the same patterns um and and then that that spark that you're describing that 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 unpredictable that no pattern thing gets transmogrified into the dark knight and and then a decade-long preoccupation with this joker (laughs) character who i just would love to not see in a movie for a little while now uh but that's like that's a whole other conversation (laughs) but i but i do think that that there's a line here right like the that the whether it's the 9-11 fascination which i think is obviously part of it but the, the idea of of this uh, this mysterious character waging terror on our home turf, right? In on our in our cities, in our, the place that we call home. I think that uh, without Zodiac, maybe you don't have that version of the Dark Knight. No, definitely not. Or, of the Joker, rather, in in that scene in the Dark Knight. <clears throat> and then there's that weird, 
phenomenon of people who uh, get book deals, I think, about the uh, their assertion that their father was this person. My father was yes. the Zodiac. Or my father was D.B. Cooper. Like, it's a... It's a thing where pe- people people want to sort of have like it's almost like this stolen valor kind of thing where they want to you know, they want to like latch on to the the the, uh, uh, the fame right of it. That was episode seven, Aries Part One of Zodiac Chronicle. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough, unplugged Zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, which is linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, presented, and produced by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Mr. Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers and pins were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time, good. Bye.